What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, Hey man, Jaws was never my scene and I don't like Star Wars. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Jonathan, I thought today we'd... Definitely, or almost definitely, be hearing about how you want to ride your bicycle, but... Yeah, if you followed that lyric long enough, you would have heard about how I want to ride my Uh. bicycle. Ah. That's 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 actually from Bicycle Race by Queen. What? No way. Yeah. Jaws oh. was never my scene and I don't like Star Wars. Well, okay, yeah. then I just don't know my stuff at all. Yeah, and I can't sing like Freddie Mercury, so I don't even know why I tried. I don't even know what song both of you guys are talking about. What? Queen? Arena rock band Queen? I, well, I know Race? the band. I... Oh my gosh. <laughs> so right. today we're going to be talking about the future of operatic rock music. Yeah, and yes. I, You know, I wish, but uh, we're actually going to talk about something that a listener has requested. A couple of listeners have requested. Yeah, don't say I wish like this isn't a cool topic. I think this you, is a really you brought cool it topic. Up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is from uh, our listener Richard who wrote to us and said 
I really enjoy your podcast. Would you consider doing a podcast on the bicycle as a future form of transportation? I think it would be fascinating. For example, how about the electrical assist bicycles becoming more popular with aging population? Will the cities of the future look more like Amsterdam in Holland with well-developed bicycle infrastructure or more like Los Angeles or Atlanta, Georgia, extremes in the opposite direction where the car remains king? Well, thank you for that question, Richard. We decided we'd take you up and talk about the future of the bicycle. And we can speak to that last point from personal experience because the three of us live in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes. And it's true, this city could definitely be more bike friendly. And yeah, the- yeah, some some parts of it are getting better about that, some mm-hmm. of the kind of small towns within Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. But lots of places I Okay, well, I find driving terrifying around Atlanta, but I find the very idea of being on a bicycle in the same places just completely out of the question it's yeah it seems really scary there are actually a ton of issues at stake here and it's one of those things that i i hear is actually an issue throughout uh the world not just in atlanta it's one of those things we notice but uh at there's the issue of the driving culture in atlanta which is definitely king uh if atlanta's got a lot of sprawl it's kind of like la in that sense and that everything is spread out and it's not easy to get to uh, various areas of Atlanta without having a car. Mm-hmm. Um, the public transportation system is not uh, is not a world class system not at robust. all. It's It's not what you would call yeah, kind of like well, Los Angeles. You, you can get to some places pretty well on Marta, but right. it's sort of in a plus shape. Yeah. So anything right along that plus shape is good. And then you can you know on the train you can take a bus to get somewhere else. But yeah, there are definitely much better public transportation systems yeah. around. And uh, also another element. Um, is just the the bicycle culture and how uh, not all bicyclists are say uh, you know adhering to the rules of the road. Which oh is an man! Issue. But I mean, so one of the issues we want to really talk about though is what can we do on the other side, right? Not just bicyclists need to make sure that they obey the rules because part of the problem is that the deck is stacked against them oh, here yeah, in the yeah, United yeah. States. The, the rules are certainly not set up for for them to work well. Yeah, it's it they are trying to fit within an infrastructure that was designed for a completely different mode of transportation. So we want to really look at what are ways that we could change things? What what's the future of this mode of transportation in places like the United States? How could it be more like other places in the world where we see bicycles being used by growing uh, populations of of commuters and uh and you know, what's the how can we set ourselves up for success? is really what we're looking at here. Yeah. So let's look back first to the ye olden bicycles. All right. And figure out where these came from. I was actually curious because I didn't know when the bicycle was invented. I was looking it up, and there's actually a cool article on Live Science about this called Who Invented the Bicycle? Uh, And according to them, it was a German inventor named Karl Dreis or Karl von Dreis, D-R-A-I-S. I guess that would be sort of a French pronunciation, Dreis. Well, if it's von, then it would be Germanic, which would be Drace. Unless he pronounced it weird. Yeah. So uh, I'll get on the phone. You, you keep going, Joe. Okay, yeah, you go find out. But anyway, the, the idea here is that he probably made the first two-wheeled bicycle in 1817. 
and his own term for it was the Laufmaschine, which is German for running machine, which is great. It's a machine that runs, except it doesn't run. It uses wheels. Right. And it was actually a modification of an earlier four-wheeled human-powered vehicle, which I think actually predates the bicycle. I think the reason it was called a running machine was not because the machine itself ran, but because in order to operate it, you had to push yourself along the ground with your feet. <laughs> right. There were no pedals. Yeah. Oh, right, right. It was a little bit like a two-wheeled Flintstones car. Yeah, or like a like an, a, an, a really big skateboard. It's just you'd straddle this thing and use your feet to, to push yourself along. Or like, uh, have you seen those balance bikes that kids have today? If you no. Go, if you go out on the Beltline in Atlanta, you'll see a lot of kids who are out with their parents and they've got their bicycles and it's a little tiny bicycle without pedals on it and it's short enough that the kids' legs can reach the ground while they're sitting on the seat. Yeah, it's essentially a modern version of what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, they were also called hobby horses. They were made from wood. The the uh, wheels were solid wheels, so it was not the, the softest ride you can imagine. Uh, I read that Man, one. I what, bet they were so comfortable. <laughs> I read that they used a leather saddle <laughs> nailed to a wooden frame. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, nothing, I love. Luxury. Uh, but uh, my favorite example from that article. Did they come with a monocle holder? I'm sure they did. Uh, my favorite example from the the article there was a there was a, a list of illustrations dated mm-hmm. from the late 19th century. Uh, was the auto bicycle auto as in O T T O, and uh, it looked like a Victorian woman who had wheels attached to her. <laughs> it was just just like two big wheels and uh, to either side and two smaller wheels in front. So it was just like ah for your wheeled Victorian lady the auto bicycle. Um, you know. Oh, I, I guess if you're if you're like whalebone undergarments are strong enough, then I, I you guess, can attach yeah. wheels straight to them. I, you know, I, the the wheel and axle was quickly followed by the 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 bone corset. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was one of those those illustrations that just I I know what it was. It was the obviously the the platform that she would be sitting on or standing against or whatever was obscured by her large Victorian dress. Mm-hmm. But uh, it just made it look like a wheeled Victorian lady. Um, now, so I wondered what's the difference between a bicycle and a velocipede. I will tell you that difference. So by the 1860s, that's when we see the entry of the velocipede. And this was the first type of bicycle or, or two-wheeled human-powered vehicle to actually have pedals and a fixed gear system. Uh, there's controversy about who was the first person to actually suggest this. A, a German inventor named Karl Kech claimed he was the first to modify a hobby horse by adding pedals. Uh, but a French inventor, Pierre Lallemand, uh, said that he was, well, he patented it. He was the first one to secure a patent in 1866. And a lot of other people immediately got in on it. In fact, I don't know that that patent offered any protection whatsoever, because from what I could tell, everybody immediately started trying to make these things. Um, now, these had steel wheels and uh, no suspension, so a very bumpy ride if you're on one of these things. They were often referred to as bone shakers <laughs> because they were not terribly gentle. Now, the main difference between that and the modern bicycle, two things. One is that we don't have solid steel wheels anymore, or well, we have the the rubber wheels that allow us to have some cushioning. In case the 
Right. Usually aluminum, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Usually you don't want it, you don't want something that's going to make the the bike super heavy. Um and also we don't have we tend to have some uh, sort of tension absorbing system so that it's not as as rough on us. Uh but to smooth out the ride when we had these velocipedes come out on the scene, one of the things they would do, the manufacturers would do, was make larger and larger front wheels. Ah, that's where that image comes from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, also, you, you don't have to work as hard. Um, it, it's just one rotation of the pedal in order to push the bicycle a lot further. That's true. Yeah, because you, you're pushing, your, you know, your rotation of the pedals is at the center of the wheel. And, of course, the circumference of the wheel is much larger. Mm-hmm. So one little rotation of the pedals is one big rotation along the wheels uh, outside so you do go a lot further for a for a a simple crank of the pedals uh but it also smoothed out the ride significantly. Those were the two big reasons. Uh, apparently, young men took to racing them in the streets of Europe. Um, <laughs> it became something of a menace, and it really wasn't that practical. They were the the common term for these were the penny farthings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, a well, fellow, they, they got so ridiculously big and yeah. sitting that high up is not really, um, conducive to safety. Yeah, no, it's, I can't even imagine what it was like getting on one of these things. I mean, once you're in motion, that, that centripetal force really helps that gyroscopic effect really helps you stay upright, but coming to a stop or, or getting started, I can't imagine how challenging that was without falling over. I mean, this is coming from a guy who hasn't ridden a bicycle since he was a kid. And I remember it took me a while to get the hang of that particular (laughs) part of riding a bike myself. Uh, That's when John Kemp Stanley came along. He's the one who created the tension absorbing front wheel uh, that allowed actual bicycles, the way we consider them today, to begin to be manufactured. Now, this was still very much in the early days, but a lot of people credit him as the father of the modern bicycle for that invention that made it actually possible to have normal-sized wheels and not a a bone-shaking experience, although it still wasn't quite gentle at this point. Uh, Probably not, no. no. I'm sure that that kind of thing, and then probably also the introduction of like variable gear bikes and things like that, is what made bicycles as popular as they have been in you know the past century as we've known them today. Sure, I mean that and the the freewheel invention. That's the the invention that allows you to coast, where you know you pedal and pedal and pedal, and then you just stop pedaling and your wheels can keep on going. Uh, that's different from fixed gear, which we'll talk about a little bit later. It's kind of interesting, uh, but it's really kind of I, I'd say that was a big advance as well. It was one of those things that. Uh, allowed people to use these in recreational ways here in the United States. And in fact, I would think that here in the U.S., recreation was the the, the largest use of bicycles, not as a, a, a vehicle for commuting for most communities. It's not true everywhere. Some cities are very bicycle friendly. Uh, Portland, I think it's uh, the law that you have to own a bicycle and then talk about it at length. That might be based upon my viewing of Portlandia all weekend long, however. <laughs> Uh, however, if we were to look at its popularity worldwide, that's pretty complicated stuff because, as it turns out, there are not a lot of authorities that collect and curate statistics of bicycles. We're going to come back to this a couple of times in this podcast, but uh, there are some inescapable facts. One of those is that bicycles are an incredibly popular means of getting around in various parts of the world, like in China, where 430 million people own bicycles. 
So, you know, that's larger than the entire population of the United States. There are 430 million bicycle owners in China. It's like um, if everybody in the United States owned 1.3 bicycles. Yeah, something like that. And uh, according to the 2010 Earth Policy Institute, they had a report that said that bicycles are the, quote, biggest means of individual mobility for hundreds of millions of Chinese, end quote. Not to suggest that it's the primary method of, of uh, transportation or mobility for all of China, but for hundreds of millions, it is the primary one. Uh, now, going back to that fixed gear, this is the kind of bike that I, th- this is the first type of bike I had as a kid, a fixed gear bike, which is the kind where actually it wasn't technically fixed gear because it did have a brake stop to it. But you use the, you know, as you move the pedals, the wheels move. And as the wheels move, the pedals move. So you can't coast. You can't just, you know, stop pedaling and keep moving. Um, but uh, it does mean that when you apply pressure to the pedals, then it stops the wheels from turning and that's how you can brake. And in a true fixed gear bike or fixie, you could even pedal backwards and have the bike move backwards, although that is not recommended. Turns out by whom? By people who, by people who want to live. Uh, it's apparently very difficult to learn um, or at least tricky. Okay, but here we are today, and there are very obvious advantages to bicycles. I mean, there are some disadvantages, too. I mean, we all know that you can't travel as far as quickly in a bicycle as you can in a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, maybe in some condi- conditions, depending on traffic or something like that, you could. But if you're talking about moving at high speed, that's sort of a setback. You probably can't haul as much cargo or as many right. people and things like that. But on the other hand, there are tons of advantages to bicycles. Uh, they're a much greener option than cars. Mm-hmm. I mean, that pretty much goes without saying. They are zero emission in in mm-hmm. the everyday use. Uh, f- furthermore, they're they're very much smaller and more lightweight. So right, you can fit more of them on a road. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, like they're lower traffic density, so you can get the same number of people through a thoroughfare mm-hmm. on bicycles much faster than you could in cars just because they're not surrounded by a huge bulk of metal that takes up space. Same thing for uh, storage and parking. You right. know, they mm-hmm. take up less space there, too. These mm-hmm. are all important considerations. They, they also promote uh, healthfulness, right? I That's mean, true. Fitness activity, like if you're you're traveling back and forth places, well, are you going to be basically passively sitting the whole time, or are you going to be moving, getting your heart rate up? I lift weights while I'm driving. <laughs> now, it, is th- that why you've had so many accidents? <laughs> <laughs> are you talking workout accidents? Or are you talking like car accidents? I'm talking about all those times we heard about when she threw a dumbbell out the window of her car at another driver in road rage. Oh, sure. Accidents. Um, Complete accidents. (laughs) Anyway, so there are obviously lots of advantages to a bicycle-based transportation infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It just makes for a much nicer place to live in a lot of ways, and it makes for uh, a healthier body, a greener environment. It's also one one other thing to point out before we move on. One other consideration is that it's less expensive. Than yeah, totally. owning and maintaining a car. I oh, mean, certainly. Yeah. Uh, once you factor in gasoline and insurance sure. and all that stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, huge advantage there. It's not even close. Yeah. <laughs> and if your bike breaks down, it's a little bit cheaper than. <laughs> yeah. Right. But if you look at most American cities today, they're not really geared towards bikes, are they? 
scared. Yeah. That was like a pun. I did. Oh, I didn't even do that on purpose. I almost pointed it out too. I'm so proud of you, Lauren. You got it before I did. Uh, <laughs> uh, they don't really cater to the cyclist in the no. way that they cater to motor vehicles. That's true. Now, some places in the world, like the Netherlands or like probably places in Asia too, are designed to cater particularly to cyclists. Mm-hmm. They've got infrastructure designed that protects cyclists and encourages people to ride bicycles. Other places, not so much, like the places Richard pointed out, maybe Los Angeles or Atlanta, even if they're getting better than they used to be, they're not exactly the Netherlands. No. So I was wondering how it got like this, and and I found an interesting story that was in a November 2014 article for Wired written by the, uh, the writer Adam Mann, and he made an interesting point about how roads in the United States are engineered and how this affects the kind of traffic they cater to. So Mann claims that in America, a bunch of social and economic trends after World War II, like, and he gives the examples of suburban planning, uh, interstate highway development, and movement of the middle class out of cities, caused cities to change the way they designed roads, specifically changing them to be more focused on accommodating cars and trucks. And now in the United States, most states use a standard for evaluating roads that's called level of service. Mm-hmm which essentially means how many cars can I cram through this intersection in a given period of time. Now, that's good if you're a driver, I guess, because it means you spend less time clogged up in traffic trying to get where you're going. But obviously relying mostly or entirely on a metric like this is going to come at the expense of other considerations, like how the road serves foot traffic Mm -hmm. or cyclists or public transportation. And Mann points out that optimizing roads to make auto travel easier creates a situation known in economics as induced demand. So as we constantly work on making roads easier and easier to drive, it simply encourages more people to drive cars because it's easy to do so. And that creates a positive feedback loop that requires us to optimize roads for even more cars because more people are driving them. Yeah, here in Atlanta, you know, we'll, we'll probably be referring to our city quite a bit in this because we've seen this in the city. You know, we've seen uh, big projects where you're, you're looking at budgets for transportation and a lot of it gets earmarked for things like widening roads or highways, highways in particular. The Atlanta highway system is ridiculous. But uh you know, it's it's we really need these twelve lanes, yeah. and uh, and also well, the thing is that each driver needs about four lanes to themselves, right? Yeah, <laughs> because because you know it's important that you be at least five lanes over from your exit when you realize you need to get all the way across, <laughs> right? And then you got to cut across all those other lanes. So, uh, yeah, no, it's ridiculous, and, and obviously there are plenty of studies that show that if you add more capacity to roads, that capacity gets filled. It doesn't right. it doesn't alleviate traffic. It just means that you have more cars in that same space. It induces demand. Yeah. So it's, you know, we, we've seen this many times here in our city. Um, and the important thing to remember is that there are alternatives, right? We've actually seen other cities kind of incorporate new strategies that have had measurable and quantifiable results. Uh, and not just improvements for, for cyclists. Right. No, no. These improvements for cyclists, I would argue... Are improvements for everybody. Yeah. Uh, so I want to look Hippie. at one. No, really, I want to look <laughs> at one particular example. And I say this as somebody who's not a cyclist. I mean, I I could be interested in in becoming a cyclist, but uh, I don't. I'm not personally 
staked in this right now. Yeah, sure. me, me, me neither, actually. Yeah. I don't even own a bike. I own a bike helmet. I'm not sure. Well, I own, I own a bike, <laughs> but no helmet. So <laughs> With our powers combined. Yes, we, we have one person who can legally ride a bicycle in our city. <laughs> Well, I own a unicycle. So <laughs> you, you maverick. But you were about to say. I'm yes, just kidding. Yes. I don't own a unicycle, but I do have some facts. All right. Hit me with them. About what's been going on in New York City. So a big thing that I think is going to be crucial in the development of bike friendly cities in the future is the addition of protected bike lanes. Mm -hmm. So you've been out driving before. Well, not you, Jonathan, but you've probably well, been out been riding. In a car before. Yeah. I, once or twice. <laughs> and even in road, a lot of roads around here don't have bike lanes at all. Right. Right. A lot of them that do have bike lanes essentially have what, what I would look at and say, that's just insulting because <laughs> yeah. it's just like a, you know, foot wide stripe that's sort of painted along the edge of the road in yeah. the rightmost lane. That's kind of partially in the gutter sometimes. Yeah. And, and may or may not involve, uh, you know, getting your elbows lopped off by someone going uh, even the normal speed for that roadway. A yeah. lot of times to me. riding over storm drains. Yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah. it doesn't even clear the storm drains sometimes. Yeah. A lot of times to me, it doesn't look any different than if there were just a cyclist riding as far as he or she could to the right yeah. in the right lane. Right. Uh, so that line I don't is, really see another lane. Well, that there. line is a force field that protects the bicyclist from any cars that could end up swerving into that traffic. Right. That's how no, that no. Oh, but <laughs> there could be such a force field. Not so much a force field, but maybe say actual some, matter in space. Yeah, yeah. Some physical matter. Yeah. So <laughs> in 2007, the city of New York started adding protected bike lanes on some roads and contrasted to the type of lanes we were just talking about, these are lanes for bikes that are set apart from motor traffic by barriers or parking spaces, like parallel parking spaces mm. between the bike lane and the driving lanes, uh, painted buffers, street lamps, planters and trees, and other non-driving zones. Right, like it might be just a raised curb, almost like a median, but just a very thin one that separates the bike lane from the car lane. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they started in 2007. Now they've got more than 30 miles of these things in the city. Mm -hmm. And in September 2014, the New York City Department of Transportation released a presentation showing some of the results. Uh, and one important finding is that these protected lanes definitely did cut down on collisions with injuries and encouraged more people to bike on the road. So that's two improvements right there. Yep. Uh, just to give a couple of examples on a stretch of Ninth Avenue in New York between 16th Street and 23rd Street. They eliminated one traffic lane and added a protected bike lane offset by a parking lane and a buffer area with some trees in it, which, you know, that's kind of nice, nice anyway. I like yeah. trees. I'm pro-tree. On, yeah, on this stretch of road, crashes with injuries were reduced by 48% and bike traffic volume increased by 65%. Oh, wow. Simultaneously. That's awesome. That is incredible because, you know, you're talking about, you know, you have a lot more bodies involved here and yet fewer actual incidents. That's, fewer actual bodies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's a really great story. Yeah. Uh, just one more example on Columbus Avenue, and this was between 96th Street and 77th Street. They didn't eliminate any traffic lanes. They just narrowed the ones that already existed. Mm -hmm. uh, they added a protected bike lane. Again, it was offset by a parking lane and some, some planters with trees in them. Crashes and injuries fell by 27% and bicycle volume increased by 51%. 
Uh, and they, they had stats like this in the presentation for a bunch of different stretches no. of road. I just wanted to give a couple examples. Now, hang on, Joe. If if you were to go and, say, remove a lane, like in that first example you gave, sure, bike traffic increases and, yeah, a few people manage to get there successfully without being hit because of that. But doesn't that end up really impacting the car traffic? I mean, if I'm a motorist, aren't I going to be totally cheesed off? You might be cheesed off, but you wouldn't have justification for it because, <laughs> believe it or not... It actually had a positive impact on the flow of auto traffic. Uh, so in many of these roads, the travel time was unchanged. And it looks like in a lot of cases, the protected bike lanes actually reduced travel time on that section of road. I I didn't see any speculation as to why exactly this I, was. I would but imagine at least some of those people would otherwise have been in vehicles that yeah. would have increased the traffic and instead were in bikes, which removed them from those lanes. And therefore, that, that, would, that would at least mm -hmm. partially offset it. Yeah, that brings up the volume thing we were yeah. talking about before. If you can get some of the people traveling this this route from cars to bicycles, more can go on the same stretch of road mm -hmm. uh, without congestion. But anyway... The numbers were, for example, on 8th Avenue in New York, travel times were reduced by an average of 14% by adding the protected bike lane, huh. which is crazy. I mean, it seems like making your city more bike-friendly in this aspect is a total win-win. Well, what, what about what about a situation where, I mean, okay, so, so you've got all of this extra space between the road and the, the the retail shops that are lining the street. How do mm -hmm. how do businesses feel about this? Awesome, actually. And this is the next win. So actually, it's a win win win. So the New York City protected bike lanes helped confirm something that actually already been observed in the past. This wasn't new to this research, but bike lanes boost business. Stores and restaurants that are along roads that have bike lanes and bike traffic receive more customers and make more money. Just one example. Uh, again, we're looking at 9th Avenue here. So this is West 23rd to West 31st Street uh, in New York. Between before they added the bike lanes and then uh, the two-year mark after they added them, the area of shops on the street section saw a 47% increase in combined sales. And, okay, so that might just mean, well, maybe the city's having a strong year economically. Mm -hmm. So they compared it to two other sites that were similar but without the protected bike lanes. And those sites only saw a 43% and 23% improvement in the same time period. So there's a lot of evidence to indicate that encouraging bike traffic, I think the same is true of foot traffic, in front of retail areas is good for the local economy. Mm -hmm. More people are patrons of your businesses when they're passing in front of it on bicycle and on foot. Mm -hmm. So this is actually key, in my opinion, because if you can get business owners pressuring local politicians to make these kinds of changes on the promise of attracting wealth and indirectly increasing revenue, you have a much better chance of actually seeing cities change. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those things where you have to make, I mean, it's, it's just true with politics. You have to make a good business case for uh, for what you want, you know, the change you want to see enacted. Yeah. And uh, sometimes that might be in some in some areas like in Portland, that might be the environmental impact where you can make that kind of argument and that's going to, to work in that community. Other places like Atlanta, you got to, you know, you might have to find a few other things to convince people to put in a bike lane for once. I, 
I think it's such a good case that, I mean, based on everything I've read, I couldn't find what the drawback was, except, I mean, I guess you have initial construction costs sure. and the inconvenience on the road while you're while you're making Replacing these changes. the infrastructure, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there is that drawback. But as far as I can tell, once you've actually made these changes, it, it's a win-win-win. It's mm-hmm. good for everybody, and everybody seems to like it. This is also just a way to make your streets nicer. So if you imagine what it actually looks like on the street when there's a sidewalk and then a bike lane and then a buffer area between the bike lane and the traffic, there is much more of a sort of peaceful sidewalk atmosphere. You're not right up against cars that are knocking you over with the wind as they pass three feet beside you at 40 miles an hour. Or being splashed. Right, right. Or also you're not encountering bicyclists who are riding on the sidewalk because the the road is way too freaking scary. Right. Uh, So these protected bike lanes, I think, really are the, the future of American city infrastructure. If we want to encourage people to ride bikes, we need these protected bike lanes. N- yeah. Not just because they make it safer and do all this other stuff, but because they encourage more people to ride bikes by making biking less stressful. Right. So let's talk about some of the improvements that we could see in this. Because even in the the one the examples you were citing in New York, uh, those bike lanes, while a huge improvement over the sort of things that we see in other cities, there still are some proposals to make them even more safe in the future, right? Right. Well, because having protected bike lanes doesn't solve all the problems. Right. It definitely makes biking safer and less stressful while you're sort of moving along the the length of a surface street. But what happens when you get to an intersection? Right. Especially if you have to make, say, a left turn. Yeah. Something well, like that. If you're an if you're a cyclist, I think a lot of the fear is coming from a right turn. Sure, because a a car turning right might not see you. Right, and it's trying to cut right. But if you, you are know. making a left turn as a cyclist, you're cutting across the two la- the lane of traffic that's immediately to your left, plus any oncoming traffic that's coming the other way. Yeah. So I mean, it's either way. You you have to worry about motorists turning right. If you're turning left, you have to worry about everybody on the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's it's you know. Intersections are tough. Right. And so this is where the idea of the protected intersection comes up. I I was reading about this earlier, and I thought that this was just great and Mm -hmm. really beautiful. So it's inspired by the design of intersections, again, in the Netherlands, a very bike-friendly country. A a Portland-based urban planner named Nick Falbo came up with this design called the protected intersection. And it could be used in American cities. And there's really nothing all that fancy or high-tech about it. It's just kind of some smart design. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much all it is. Uh, what, what are the what are the integral elements here? Okay, so imagine your standard traffic intersection. Okay, where there are rectangular streets coming up to it. They each end at you know four corners, and then there's an intersection box right. in the middle. That's where the crosswalks you know, yeah. are, and yeah. yeah, and the crosswalks are right at the edges of the box. Right. That's sort of the old way. This has several different things. First of all, what you're going to have to imagine are these things that he calls corner refuge islands. So imagine the box again. Mm -hmm. So at every corner of the box, imagine there is centered on that corner another smaller box that includes this island he's talking about in the corner of the box that extends into the big intersection box. Mm -hmm. Are you right. following it's, me at all? <laughs> it's it, it's sort of like a little bubble, if you can imagine, like like kind of like a little bubble coming off 
of the sidewalk area a little mm-hmm. bit further out into the intersection. That's kind of what it looks like. Yeah, yeah that's it, a good way of putting it. Yeah, it, it, each, it as, at each corner, wherever you'd be turning, there's yeah. a bubble of sidewalk and protected area that extends into the intersection. Right, so that the bike lane, the protected bike lane that you are in, so when you're when you're riding and it's immediately to your left that's separating you from the cars, it actually extends into the intersection just a touch so that when you make your right turn, uh, yeah, but you can go straight. There's an opening. But if you make a right turn, you're never exposed to, to vehicle traffic. traffic. Right, right. Yeah. So any car making a right turn there or coming the other way is going to have to turn around the outside of this island curb area that's between you and it constantly. Right. So that's one protection. The next one is is the forward stop bar for cyclists. This is simply the idea that the place where cyclists have to stop at the intersection and wait on the traffic light is much further ahead than where the cars have to stop. Uh, Like a car length or so. Yeah, and so this ensures that cars see where cyclists are. Right. They're not... And they're not in a blind spot. They're not immediately off to the right where, you know, they may not notice because they're looking, the motorist is looking ahead, not directly to the right, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Right. Uh, the next thing is setback bike and pedestrian crossing. So this just means that instead of the crosswalks being right at the edges of the intersection, they're set a little bit back from the intersection. And this has several advantages. One of them is just that let's say you are going through a crosswalk and somebody is turning right into the crosswalk while mm. you're going, well, they're not going to be just turning into you blindly because the crosswalk is set back far enough that they will be facing you directly by the time they get to it. Right. They will have already completed the turn and be moving straight again. So they have to consciously make the decision to run you down. Right. Yes. The next would be, uh, and this is the last one, bicycle-friendly signal phasing. And this is just how you control the stoplights there right having separate lights for bicycle traffic and for auto traffic and and also controlling the phases of them separately this is kind of like how some intersections have a a walk phase for pedestrians that is that allows people to start crossing before the traffic for cars changes so it'll hold everyone I mean, like a four-way stop it'll hold everyone at a stop while the pedestrians are able to cross i've seen that in a couple of different intersections most mm-hmm. of them are not that way but a few are uh, yeah and if you get a chance i really recommend looking this up i think it looks really cool you can check it out at protectedintersection.com. i think it's a smart idea the creator did admit there's basically one major drawback to it um and that's that because of this bubble formation that's a terrific protected area for both pedestrians and cyclists to hang out in um it, you're you're modifying the way that cars are going to have to turn in the intersection it's going to be a much sharper turn and so you know like a like a two seater isn't going to have that much trouble but a large truck might right. uh, which might mean um that you'd have to either change the way that trucks are built or or change the way that cities allow trucks to drive around in them right you'd either change the truck's route where it's going or you might change i don't know how good truck drivers are at what they do <laughs> but it just <laughs> or, 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 it... or just what sizes of trucks uh, are are built and uh, are yeah. used but i mean you could see this easily becoming an issue let's say that you uh you are moving from one part of the city to another and you rent a 
uh, a trailer to to haul your stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, that w- alone would make it very oh, difficult. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or like, what about a school bus? Those things can't turn for anything. Right. But... So then I guess, yeah, there's the question. It's like, well, does the inconveniencing of large trailer trucks, uh, you know, does that offset the benefit provided by this kind of system? I don't know, but. It seems like a really good idea to me. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a civil engineer. <laughs> as, as someone, again, as, as someone non-expert, who, as someone who's a pedestrian and and soon to be cyclist, uh, you know, these these sort of things really appeal to me. I mean, anything that increases the safety of folks in general and at the same time is promoting. Uh, a healthier lifestyle, a more green method of getting around, uh, reducing traffic. I mean, all of these are are definitely incentives to look into stuff like this. Oh, yeah. On top of everything we've said, I think that there's one more piece of news we came across that makes it that look actually looks good for bikes in cities. Yeah, this would be going back to that level of service you were referring to earlier. Right. That was the idea that roads are measured in performance by how many cars they can get through them in a given period of time. And generally speaking, uh, civil engineers don't didn't like to see that number go down for any reason. Right. They didn't want to see it become less efficient. And in some states, like in California, this ended up becoming a a matter of policy where, uh, as a rule, the city of Los Angeles, for example, wouldn't consider any kind of proposal to any sort of transportation project if it meant negatively impacting the level of service of the uh, intersections nearby. And that would mean that perhaps there'd be some projects that in the long run would be incredibly beneficial, but in the short run might have a negative impact on a particular intersection for you know however long it's going to take for the project to complete. And those projects would not even be considered, despite the fact that there might be a real benefit in the long run. But recently... The state of California decided that level of service would no longer be the guideline for making these kind of decisions. Bravo. Yeah, they can make changes now that in the short term might make life a little more complicated for folks who have to navigate through that intersection, but in the long term could stand to benefit people in immeasurable ways. Right. You can have a longer view of the improvement of your traffic infrastructure. Right. Now, first of all, one of the interesting things, and this is one of those, it almost, it seems really informal to me. Like there are a lot of informal news reports about how millennials are giving up the car. They're not interested in owning cars. They're not interested in having that automobile. That's not how they define independence. By golly, the way they define independence is the fact that they can access the world's knowledge using a device in the palm of their hand. Whereas I think, well, maybe it's also because of crippling student debt and the inability to afford a car and maintain a car. But that's ridiculous. Yeah, I know. It's, it's kind it's of silly. A, it's their right? tight jeans. It gives them ideas. Exactly. Uh, there are a lot of factors that go into whether or not uh, people of the in the millennials age range, which is late teens to mid 20s, um, why uh, why there seems to be a larger population of them who are not. Uh, getting cars, not owning cars, buying cars. Well, what are um, the actual numbers on that? I don't have numbers for you, Joe. I do. Oh, oh. Right. oh that's good. <laughs> uh, so so basically, according to research that was done by the PIRG Educational Fund and the Frontier Group, which it should be said are like pro-green kind of entities. Uh, that being said, though, um, they found that Americans in general drove less from 2001 to 2009. Um, like the population increased by 10% and driving 
simultaneously decreased by 1%. And that's the first decrease that we've seen in recent decades, uh, like basically going back to the 1950s. However, people ages 16 to 30 during that decade drove the least, uh, 25% less than that same age group did in the 1990s. Mm. Um, And as of 2011, they found that only 67% of Americans ages 16 to 24 even had driver's license, um, which is the lowest percentage in the past 50 years. Now, you can also look at that decade and see another trend, which is that fuel prices were increasing fairly steadily. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things where, again, uh, the the factors that determined why people were doing this, why this this particular generation was doing this are varied. It, some may very well be making it as a lifestyle choice. They want to live close to where they work, close to where they play. And all of that means that they don't have a need for a car. That could be part of it. But some of them may be doing it because they are environmentally uh, conscious and they want to be very eco-friendly. Some may be doing it simply because it's the the financially viable means for them to get to where they need to go. Um, bo- boiling this down to a simple answer is, I think, a mistake because life is never that simple, especially when it gets to something about why humans do something <laughs> in a particular way. It's always complicated. But... There are a lot of uh, these a lot of these factors are all coming to play at the same time. And we are seeing this kind of shift, at least right now. Now, granted, the, as we're recording this, uh, gas prices are, are significantly lower than they had been for quite some time. So it could be that we see a reversal in this trend. It may be that it has nothing to do with the generation at all and that this ends up just being a little blip in the long-term uh, uh, history of the United States, Americans, and their cars. Because we do have a very car-centric um, culture in many parts of the United States. Uh, so it's just something to keep in mind. And the one other thing to keep in mind is that when we're talking about millennials and this uh, adoption of bikes is that we're largely talking about the United States. That's yeah. the same thing is World not trends true. trends are... Different. Probably quite different. Yeah. And in China and India, a lot more younger people are interested in buying cars. And there are a lot more people in those countries than there are in the United States. So globally, the story is not that young people are are eschewing automobiles and, and we're not going to see cars uh, except for long distance travel in the near future. Or it's all going to be car sharing and no one's going to own a car. That's not necessarily going to be true across the world. Okay, well, so we've talked about how the cities of the future might change to become more bike-friendly and why that sort of seems, at least to be hopeful, likely to happen, Mm -hmm. and possible trends in how people are feeling about cars and bicycles. But what about the bicycles themselves? Right. Could the bicycle as a machine actually change in the future, or is that pretty much going to stay exactly how it's always been? Well, it's a, it's a pretty simple machine, right? I mean, it's pretty effective the way that it is. I, what what could we do to improve it? Well, uh, 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 rockets. Uh, right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, that's that's good. I like, like where you're going. Hover like bike. Going. Okay, that's good. That's Ooh. good. Hey, what, what if what if we double the number of wheels on a bicycle? Uh-huh. Uh, put it in a frame. Uh, cover that frame in metal sheeting. Put a motor in it and run it on fossil fuel. Ooh. Right. So you don't have to pedal. You don't get wet when it rains. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. I think it's gonna catch on. Yeah. It was. It certainly has. I. You know. We can just look at the window and see. Uh, no, there are actually lots of different ways that bicycles could evolve, and many of them are kind of in the mind of 
the millennial. I mean, it's the idea of having this connected device. It's just that now it's also a device you ride on, not just, you know, the stuff that you're carrying on your person. But some of the, the more simple uh, improvements are ones we've seen over the last couple of decades, such as uh, electric bicycles, which is not a new idea. Is that different than an electric motorcycle? Yes. Uh, an electric motorcycle does not require any sort of pedaling at all. In fact, there's usually no no actual pedals, whereas an electric bicycle can at least be switched to manual pedaling if you want it. Okay. So there are two different ones. But we're seeing not just electric bicycles, but electric assist bicycles. Bi uh, the These are bikes that have an electric motor that help uh, kick in and give you a little extra boost so that you don't have to exert yourself quite as hard on difficult terrain, for example, or a really tall hill, which I think would make people who live in San Francisco extremely happy. Mm -hmm. Um now, like I said, they're not new. There are patents that actually date from the late 19th century. So it's the same century that we saw the bicycle itself be invented. <laughs> uh, by the, now, granted, that was at the beginning, but toward the end, we started seeing patents being filed for battery-operated bicycles. Uh, however, that being said, as far as I could tell, there wasn't like a lot of production for electric bicycles early on. There were a lot of patents, but that doesn't necessarily mean people made the stuff that they came up with. Right. Mm -hmm. um, however, if you look in the mid 20th century, you start seeing some of those designs actually work their way into production. Um, but then it was even just a tiny niche of the overall bicycle market, right? It wasn't like it was the common element. I mean, I never had a bike that had any kind of uh, electronic assist to it. I had just regular old, you know, human-powered bicycles. Mm -hmm. But we're starting to see the market grow rapidly today, particularly in regions such as Europe and Asia. But we're also seeing it start to grow in the United States. We're seeing a lot of interesting innovation in that spot. So... The pedal assist versions, you have a motor that kicks in yeah. once you hit a certain threshold and it ends up taking over some of the work so that, you know, you're still doing in most cases, you're still doing some work as you're pedaling, but the motor is taking over any uh, any excess so that you don't have to pedal extra hard in order to get over that hill or whatever. Uh, some other ones like a true electronic bicycle where the motor can provide full propulsion might have throttle control. So it would essentially be like, you know, a pedal or a more likely something that's in the, the handlebars mm -hmm. that allows you to control the throttle and ride it more like it was an electronic motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And then you could switch to manual by easing off the throttle and starting to pedal. Uh, and there are a lot of really cool products that allow you to turn existing regular old bicycles into e-bikes uh Although not all of them are are actually available on the market, but they're you know coming out soon. Like the the Flycly Smart Wheel <laughs> and the Copenhagen Wheel. Have you heard about these? No. no. Both of these are super cool. Uh, Copenhagen Wheel was developed, I think, by MIT, and uh, Flycly was developed. I want to say it was uh, a Eastern European company that made that. But both of these are. Similar concepts. They are replacement wheel for the rear rear wheel of your bicycle. So you would, you know, dismantle your bike, take the rear bike uh, wheel off, put this wheel so in its place. You got to get a little greasy. Yeah, you got to get a little greasy, and then you you know replace the drive system, which I'm imagining would for most of these bikes is going to be a chain driven bike. I mean, there are other types of drivetrains for bicycles, but chain is one of the most 
popular and common. Uh, and there's the flywheel itself is motorized. It's inside the hub of the bicycle wheel. So it looks like a regular wheel on the, the circumference. There are spokes that lead in, but then the hub is much larger, like dinner plate sized, as opposed to a little round circle in the very center. And that flywheel is what kicks in and gives you the pedal assist. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's depending upon which version you have, you can have different options. Like the, uh, Flycly has a Bluetooth connection that connects to your smartphone, uh, that you, in that you can set what your top speed limit is going to be because these things can let you go pretty fast, like in excess of 30 miles per hour on a bicycle. Um, but you can set that, that speed in your app and say, don't let me do that. <laughs> that would be dumb of me. I don't, and I don't trust me. So you make sure I don't do that. But there are other ones like I know the Copenhagen wheel in particular is supposed to allow you to set a specific threshold for physical exertion and say, this is how hard I want to pedal. And anytime you encounter terrain that would require you to pedal harder than that, it automatically kicks in so that you are constantly pedaling at the same physical exertion from beginning of ride to the end, no matter what kind of stuff you encounter. So even if you hit a really steep hill, you're okay. And I love that idea because Atlanta does have quite a few hills and I have a feeling I'm going to need all the help I can get. Um, <laughs> But th these are just, you know, kind of concepts of stuff that allow you to convert your existing bike into that. And uh, I don't think the Copenhagen's available yet, but the Flycly had a Kickstarter. And I think for 550 bucks, you could get one of those wheels. So it's almost you know, it's like depending on what kind of bike you get, it's about the price of a bike. <laughs> so you're, you're doubling the price of your of your bicycle at that point. Um, and of course, that's just like a, a middle run uh, a metropolitan style bike. They can get pretty expensive if you're very serious about this stuff. Then there's the bike of the future. The future bike? <laughs> yeah. It's called the Denny. Uh, so there was, <laughs> oh, it yeah. sounds so futuristic. Well, there were, there but was no, actually, I did read about this one and it does sound cool. Yeah, this this was part of a design competition. There was a design mm -hmm. competition. It began way back in like 2011, I think. And uh, there were a bunch of different groups that were all interested in designing what would be the bicycle of the city of the future. Yeah. Like what, what would be the elements that you would want to include? And some of the bikes were, I mean, all of them were really cool ideas. All the ones that made it to the finals and then were voted upon uh, were all nifty. And some of them had things like GPS sensors so that if someone took your bike, you could totally find out where your bike was. Uh, some of them had, uh, you know, very lightweight materials that were printed in by a 3D printer. So like lots of neat stuff. But the Denny was kind of an e-bike on steroids. So it had a motorized front wheel, not the rear wheel like the Copenhagen or the Flycly. Mm -hmm. uh, but same sort of concept. It pedal assist that could kick in and help you out. Uh, had a had a, an automatic shifter to control the gears that was computerized. So you never had to worry about shifting gears. If you wanted full manual control, it would shift gears automatically to give you the best experience for whatever you know, situation you happen to be in. Uh, it cuts down on splashback if you're running, riding your bike and you're hitting puddles or it's raining. Um, instead of having a fender, which is why most bikes 
that are designed for that kind of travel. That's the way they handle it. It actually had a little, uh, little thing that stuck out behind the rear wheel with bristles to break up the water droplets as they get kicked up. So, oh, it, hey, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you don't have this big fender covering your back wheel, just this, these little bristles that it's almost like a little broom that breaks up the, the water and apparently is really effective. Smart. Yeah. Uh, I'm really curious to see how many times I show up to the office with like, a, a a streak of road grit down my spine from riding the bike in, in, in weather that was not so great. Um, I'm hoping it's not frequently. It also had the handlebars that could come apart, detach from the bicycle, and act as a bike lock. Oh. So not only are you locking your bike, but you've removed the handlebars. So it makes <laughs> makes anyone stealing the bike less likely to do so because it's now they can't steer it. Mm-hmm. Um and that was kind of interesting. So it it was the one that actually won this design competition. Uh, yeah. There was some coverage on it in, in um, mid-2014. And um, I haven't seen – it's supposed to go into production because the winner of the competition was supposed to get like a, a, a production of these. Don't know how many are going to be made and I don't know how expensive it's going to be. I have a feeling it will probably be outside of my price range for a, a, a bicycle. Uh, it would be hard for me to justify that expense uh, to my wife, <laughs> she'd be like, uh, you have a bike. Uh, it works. Oh, well, but it's not uh, like you're getting a car. That's true. Well, if I did get a car, she'd say, no, this was a colossal waste of money. <laughs> so you don't have a license. <laughs> what were you thinking? You know, speaking of not driving cars, yeah. I had one more thought okay. about how the future of bike friendly cities could look even better than it does so far. Okay. And that's. Autonomous vehicles. Yeah. I I think self-driving cars, as they enter the market, on one hand, they will be a very tempting technology to take advantage of. So, well, I mean, yeah, of course I want to ride in a self-driving car. I can do whatever I want while I'm riding. I don't have to worry about all that. Read a book or do my nails or, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's also, as we've talked about many times on here, I think we're all three pretty convinced that self-driving cars are going to be massively, massively safer than human drivers. Oh, yeah. The fact that the Google cars alone have been on the, the roads for more than a year and only have been involved in two accidents, both of which were driver fault not machine human, fault. human fault right? yeah yeah that tells me that this is this is a good pathway yeah, yeah. and and i think they're only getting better I, yeah i think and also i mean almost all accidents are caused by humans yeah you know, human fault sure they're yeah. uh they're things that could have been avoided if people had been better drivers sure yeah and the the cars that are driving themselves are better drivers than you are this is yet one more factor that I think is going to increase the safety of cyclists on the road sure. and just generally decrease the stress, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cars can be way more aware of what's going on around them than a driver can. I mean, just human limitation, right? I'm not even saying that there are people out there who are terrible drivers. The best driver in the world cannot have 360 degree awareness of his or her surroundings like a an autonomous car with the right sensors could. Sure, sure. And I mean, you know, as people get more used to seeing bikes on the road, I think that that drivers are going to be more cautious about it, um, more used to it. And and incorporating some of these infrastructure changes would would definitely help in, you know, getting bikes out to a place where a car can see them before they make a turn or something like that. Yeah. Um, 
and and giving the bikes a safe lane in in which to ride, <laughs> which is not you know at the at the car's elbow, um, because cars have elbows now. It is the future. Well, and, <laughs> um, and also on that same on that same pathway. Uh, making the roads safer for bicyclists and, and allowing for these kind of things and keeping them outside of the lanes for cars uh, ends up being less stressful for the, the motorists in general because they're no longer trying to, you know, they're no longer complaining about that guy who's weaving through the traffic lanes because they're on a bicycle. So they're mm-hmm. going right between two line, lanes of cars or they're or it's someone who is running through a a stop sign or a red light because now we've got an infrastructure where because of the support being there bicyclists don't there's there's not any incentive for them to break rules right know? right 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 but 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 hypothetically you know as as good as this could be uh, yeah i think that um automated cars could could do a much better job of it just by virtue of what they are yeah yeah I, I feel really good about the future of bicycles, actually. I didn't know what I thought before I started researching for this episode, but the more I've read, the more I feel like, yeah, I, I think the future for bikes in cities is very strong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, thank you so much for, for writing to us, Richard. Yeah. This was a really fun topic to dive into. And if any of you out there have a similarly fun topic that you would love us to tackle, something that's future-oriented, you should get in touch with us, too, and let us know what you think. And we'll be, you know, doing a lot more of these kind of episodes in the future. So to get in touch with us, you can write us an email. That address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can always drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. At Twitter and Google+, we are fwthinking. Just search fwthinking and Facebook will pop right up. Leave us a message, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.